0: When is less more? What should your EMS unit be treating in a cardiac arrest, and when should they scoop and run? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Mary Ann Gauchy-Hill, Professor of Medicine at David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and Director of EMS and Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowships at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Dr. Galshi Hill is nationally known for her work as an EMS researcher and educator and for her leadership in the field of pediatric emergency medicine and pre-hospital care. She's won too many awards to mention here, but most recently in 2008, she was awarded a Heroes Award for Achievement by the American College of Emergency Physicians, and that kind of says everything. Today we're discussing ACLS versus BLS, or in a cardiac arrest, when should your EMS scoop and run? and when should they stay and treat. Welcome, Dr. Gauchy-Hill. Thank you so much. You know, you're a nationally renowned leader in EMS and emergency medicine. What inspires you? How'd you get here?
1: I was very much interested in emergency medicine early on. In medical school, I actually shadowed an emergency physician at Harbor UCLA Medical Center, and given it's a level one trauma center and pediatric critical care center, there was a lot of action, and I think that that part was pretty exciting. What I realized during my residency here at, at Harvard UCLA Medical Center is that there's a lot of questions that need to be answered, and so I was fascinated with the concept of answering questions in emergency medicine and more specifically in emergency medical services for children.
0: Now, first of all, why would anybody even call into question the need for ACLS in the field? Or is this part of the evidence-based medicine that's really been a trend and that we're looking at harder in emergency medicine services?
1: Well, I think there's two things. One is EMS systems were developed based on, in part, military experience, in part based on experiences in emergency departments, with the idea that the scope of practice of those providers, basic and advanced, would be based on a certain level of training or number of hours of training, and we kind of made our best guess based on that. And so the division of BLS and ALS is a bit artificial. I think it's reasonable, but it began with the idea that providers would require additional training or advanced training, such as the use of medications and doing endotracheal intubation. And so that's kind of the division that occurred. And so we saw the development of basic providers in most systems, and then eventually the introduction of advanced life support providers with the idea that we would kind of mimic what was done in the emergency department in the field. Unfortunately, we didn't do that based on whether it works in the field, we did it based on kind of common sense and what we thought worked in the ED, and so therefore it made sense that it might work in the field. So it was kind of a best guess, and I think it was reasonable. It's just now we're beginning to understand that some of those guesses weren't exactly accurate and that we need to really establish the evidence based on meaningful outcomes for patients and have that drive our EMS systems and the scope of practice with providers.
0: Now, our colleagues in Ontario looked at several areas as part of an OPAL study. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and what areas were they looking at?
1: The OPAL study stands for the Ontario Pre-Hospital Advanced Life Support Study, or OPAL, and it's the largest pre-hospital study to date. Involved over 25,000 patients over an eight-year period, which is really a Herculean effort. The concept of the OPAL study was to evaluate what the incremental benefit was for advanced life support services. So, in Canada, all the systems were BLS-based. A number of communities began to want to introduce ALS services. And what we saw was that the Ontario Ministry of Health was interested in finding what the cost-benefit was for the introduction of the ALS services. And so Dr. Steele, who is a scientist in the Medical Research Council of Canada, was funded and therefore charged with the evaluation of the benefit of
0: ALS services in a number of different patient groups. So what did he chose to look at for adults, for instance, with CPR? or?
1: He was very interested in what the benefit of ALS services was in the cardiac arrest patient. And so, you know, a number of communities have looked at this, looked at rapid defibrillation, so meaning under eight minutes providing a defibrillator, citizen CPR, and then ALS services and you see a a variation in survival from community to community, but the previous research hadn't really adequately separated out the benefit of ALS over, say, a rapid defibrillation program. So the questions that they were trying to answer is, what is the incremental benefit in cardiac arrest survival that could be expected when a first basic life support system had defibrillation is added in a non paramedic system, meaning they didn't do advanced skills, which are typically intubation and and entrance access. And then what is the benefit when you then, on a rapid defibrillation system, you add ALS services to that. So now you include intubation and IV drug therapy. Is there a benefit in survival in that particular population?
0: Those of you just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. Marianne Gauchy Hill from Harbor UCLA, and we're discussing new research in EMS when to scoop and run, and when to stay and treat. So, what did they decide in Ontario with adults and CPR and ACLS?
1: In terms of what these communities had to do to meet a rapid defibrillation program, they had to have a 911 system. You know, to try to deal with the confounders, all the systems had to be somewhat similar, right? Because you could have differences in say, just response time based on 911 availability. They also had to have an ambulance defibrillation program, and the provider had to arrive on scene with the defibrillator within eight minutes because there's data that says once you go beyond eight minutes, then survival goes right. All hope is lost. Right? Exactly. Then, for the advanced life support training, they had to have, you know, a certain number of classroom hours in a community college, and they also had to include intratracheal intubation, IV access, and use of intravenous drugs. So there had to be some similarity. In fact, they had to be the same between the systems, and some of these communities could not meet the standard and therefore were not included, but overall, most of the communities, 21 communities, participated. It's very interesting what they found. Well, one, certainly they found what other systems have found, that age by standard CPR certainly made a difference, and response interval made a difference initially. And this is before they added the ALS uh, component. Right. So those two we would expect, right? Age and
0: response time.
1: Exactly. And they also found through the rapid defibrillation program that the introduction of this rapid defibrillation program in all these communities did improve survival.
0: But what about the treatments that they instituted on the scene? What did they find there?
1: They found that the intubation and IV access really did not improve survival at all in the cardiac arrest situation. So the addition of ALS services to the scene did not improve survival over a rapid defibrillation program, which I think... Was a big surprise.
0: Did they also look into initial monitored rhythm in terms of separating the outcomes? In other words, asystole versus VFib, et cetera.
1: Well, V-fib has the best survival. We know that. And they found that that was consistent. So that data is consistent with previous data that shows that if you're in ventricular fibrillation, that your likelihood of uh, survival is is
0: increased. Did they compare the groups who had V-fib and got additional ACLS besides initial defibrillation as opposed to V-fib and only have a defibrillator?
1: Well, they did find that in the second phase of the study, so with the addition of the ALS services, that Mm -hmm. there was slightly more PEA and asystole. Now, it's interesting, in, in children, we found that PEA had the highest survival in children.
0: Does that go back to what's reversible in children may not be reversible in adults or the underlying etiology?
1: I would say that's absolutely the case. It's a completely different etiology in children. So PEA may have greater survival characteristics as compared to v Fab in that particular setting, although nobody's really looked at that extensively. That's all based on just a prospective
0: case series. Now, you yourself have also done some interesting work with children in intubation. Is that correct? That's right. Can you tell us a little about that? I was very
1: interested initially in looking at intubation in terms of... I wanted to train all the paramedics
0: in Los Angeles and Orange Counties in intubation because I thought that was a a good thing to do. You mean particularly you're talking about pediatric? Pediatric, yes. That's like trying to empty the ocean with a spoon. I mean, that was a big task to take on, right? It was huge. It was about a a 10-year effort. Once the ball started rolling, it just kept rolling on, you know,
1: but I, I was very curious. I wanted to train everybody, and I said, this is a great opportunity. We'll train everybody, and we'll evaluate. We'll see, does intubation make a difference? And originally, you know, when I started looking at the data, I realized that the studies were so small and that there was no randomization, so there was no way to tell what the true effect of intubation was in terms of survival. I mean, we thought that you intubate in the ED, it's got to be a good thing in the out-of-hospital setting, But as time went on, I realized that, A, the settings are very different, B, that the most important thing to a child is getting rapid oxygenation and ventilation, and that can be achieved with bag mass ventilation. And if they're taught appropriately that skill, it may do just as well as intubation. But we didn't know that. And so we did, as many people know now, a a large randomized study of bag mass versus ET randomizing the availability of intertracheal intubation for children every other day in probably the largest, one of the largest ema systems in the world, which is L.A. County, as well as the addition of Orange County.
0: Now, how did you get that one passed in IRB? I'm dying to know. Intubation versus vag-ambo-valve unit. How did that go?
1: I'll tell you something very funny. I thought it was going to be very difficult because we were asking for waiver of consent. Many people hadn't done that at that time. What was interesting is that the IRB, after, you know, my review of the literature and their review, they said, why would you want to intubate
0: in the field? There's no real data. that shows it does anything. And I thought they were going to come at me for bag mask and just doing bag mask. So your IRB actually gave you the synopsis of the study in reviewing your protocol to evaluate.
1: Yeah. It was was very funny because I I went, whoa, because everybody's always been saying, you know, well, could you withhold intubation from children but I really believe that it's the rapid access to oxygenation and ventilation that improves survival and what's interesting is we really got everybody on board. We spent a lot of time educating, talking about, you know, the ethics of the trial and all that and and I think that was absolutely key to get the you provider to participate in this because, you know, we were worried that they would just do whatever they wanted willy nilly and It didn't happen that way, and I think because we spent a lot of time explaining why we want to ask this question.
0: And you answered it, too, though.
1: Yeah, we did. It's one of the most rewarding and amazing experiences of my career to be involved in the implementation of that trial, and everybody really worked hard together. I think what we're seeing now is we're seeing, A, a greater emphasis on training and basic skills, which I'm thrilled about, and I know the American Heart has been pushing that in their recent guideline. Really, all the evidence that has come since the trial has really supported our work, and that has been very gratifying. You know, I just want to take better care of children, and and my kids were young when the trial started. My son had asthma, and I'm thinking, I wonder what day I want it to be.
0: On that note, what advice would you give to docs in the field, maybe ER or pediatric ER, maybe pediatrics that are just starting out in light of your career and the work that you've done?
1: Well, uh, the key is just to try to be the best you can be and continue to ask questions. Kind of the status quo may not actually be what's best for your patients. And I think we know that when you get information like this, it takes many, many years to actually be incorporated into practice. So I just challenge all my colleagues to read, to be aware of what's happening so you can move that process earlier because that's just going to benefit
0: your patients. Thank you for being our guest today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed being a part of ReachMD. We've had Dr. Marianne Gauchy-Hill today from Harbor, UCLA. She's been our guest. We've been discussing EMS treatment of cardiac arrest, when is doing less in the field, really more. And I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts 24-7. Call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. Triple eight six three nine six one five seven. That's triple eight six three nine six one five seven. And thank you for listening.